Hi everyone, welcome to episode 4 in the second series of 90th Minute Winner. I'm delighted to be joined by Gavin Henderson, who is the Managing Editor of Roger Report. So Gav, thanks for joining me today. No bother, mate. Um, so just to get thing, one thing absolutely clear, um, because I am talking to someone associated with the club and I also work for the club in some capacity, um, just want to make thing, some one thing clear that all opinions today are Gav's, not mine. I just ask questions and Gav answers them <laughs> to the best of his ability. Um, so... <laughs> Normally on the podcasts, I get coaches on, managers on, um, ex-players, but it, it's very rare I actually get somebody within the the journalism sector, if you know if that's what you want to call it. Um, but very lucky to have Gav on today. But we've actually known each other for a good 20, 25 years. Is that right, Gav? Something like that. I got old, mate. We're getting old. Getting old. It's it's a shock to the system when you you put it like that, really, isn't it? But um. <laughs> I mean, it's been a long time since we're kicking the ball around the back lane as kids. Like, oh, it tells about. I miss, I miss them days. Like, but never mind. Thing, time moves on. Eh? Um <laughs> but you know, our our careers initially started off pretty much the same because we both got into coaching pretty early in in our lives. Um, but yeah. your your careers took a bit of a different direction. So, I know there's people on the pot on who listen to the episode that aren't necessarily from the northeast, and you predominantly write for writing blog and you know do podcasts for Roga Report, but for anyone that doesn't understand what or know what Roga Report is, can you just explain a little bit more detail what, what it is? Yeah, to be honest, it's, it's, it's a, it started off um, probably 10 years ago before I was even involved with it, just as a blog. As blogs were getting quite popular um, amongst football fans and Sunderland didn't really have one apart from uh, Love Supreme, who's the main Sunderland fans, you know, uh, the longest running Sun and Fans and they've been going for well over thirty years. But in terms of like online blogs and stuff, um there was there was nothing really for Sunland and uh so yeah, Rooker Report was born from that. Um I didn't get involved till about two thousand and fourteen. Um to be honest, it was it 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 had like a a really um I don't know what the word is, like a strong descent. It became very popular very quickly in like early 2010. Yeah. Um, in 11, sorry. And then it was like massive amongst the fans because like I say, there was nothing of its kind. Um, there was a podcast born off the back of it, which uh, the guys who ran it at the time, they, they, they were involved with. But really, it just became a very popular fan platform. Um, by the time I got involved with it, to be honest, it was kind of on its arse a bit. It was like not really being run by anybody. Um the lads who were involved didn't really have any sort of direction or motivation to keep it going. I was I was always really passionate about writing. I always have been. I mean, I, that's what I studied at college. It was um, what I came away with. My main qualifications in life are from are from journalism, writing, literature. Yeah. So um, I was always going to end up doing something like this, whether it was for a living or as a hobby, really. Um, and that's what it became. I, just, I was really passionate about writing. So... I kind of forced me way in. I pushed me way into being <laughs> Roker Report's main main man. Really, I, I kind of just took it by by the horns and I gave it some direction. And it is what it is today. It runs itself. I've got a really, really brilliant group of people with us who, um, from podcasts to you know doing events around Sunderland on match days to writing blogs every day to news to you know exclusive interviews everything you can think of really we're in, we're an all-encompassing fan platform which has people from every corner of the globe involved but we've all got the same common interest which is Sunderland um so I'm basically just the one the glue that holds it together but I mean I couldn't do it without all all the people who help us you know and what it's become is probably the the most 
popular, well-read, most listened to fan platform. Essentially, for Sunderland fans, it's it we cover off just about everything, and um, I think it's probably became quite an important uh, important tool for fans, not just on WSI, but I'd say mainly abroad. Because I mean, if you're or even outside of WSI, because you've got to think Sunderland fans don't just come from Sunderland, you know, we've yeah. got people everywhere and it's the same with every football club and I mean, I'm quite lucky I can roll out of bed stick my shoes on, go to the pub before the game, go watch Sunderland normally get beat and then come home, you know, a lot of these people though they can't follow Sunderland the same way I do and yeah. what Broker Report do gives them a little bit more if that makes sense they, they can tune into the podcast and try and catch up on the latest crack they've been hear interviews with players that really if it wasn't for us they would never hear from these people they, they, they can log on in the morning and, and read you know five six sometimes uh, hard work and well written articles from, from their fellow fans really who are just passionate about the club so that's really the gist of it uh, we're, we're, we're just running ourselves at the minute I, mean, yeah. I can't believe we've never had football for six months yet we're, we're still finding ways to, to find things to talk about and um, yeah, really, I guess it's been quite quite an interesting period as a as a blog because uh, obviously what's going on in the world we've we've had to kind of adapt, but then at the same time there's there's a lot going on at the club and people kind of look to us for guidance. I don't want to say we're a voice of the fans because I hate when people say that we're not. We just speak for ourselves, but at the same time, people do like to have that comfort blanket when when there's a big outlet, you know, saying something that they believe in. That it's kind of a cause to get behind, you know. So yeah, we're we're. Uh, we're a bit of everything, I would say. Yeah, do you think that helps, actually? With, you know, you, you you probably read yourself and other people will read, like, the Chronicle and the Sunland Echo and stuff, so who aren't necessarily massive, massive Sunland fans, but do you think the people who are writing for the Roger Report, maybe voluntary or maybe getting paid a little bit of, little bit of money for it, because it comes from, from them or from the heart almost, do you think people resonate with that a little bit more? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, you've got to think as a fan... What means the most to you is your your concerns are being met, yeah. and often people look upon the local media and don't really feel like they're being they're being backed up. You know, yeah. Um, it was interesting recently. Actually, I was invited to join a call. Uh, it was a, just a private one between some of the fan groups and um, Anderson Network, and they were you know kind of asking, "We we we know we need to try and be better." Mm-hmm. How can we improve our content yeah. so that people enjoy it more? You know, and I thought that was great. It's the first time that a, a local newspaper has really reached out. But if you start to see it now, really, with the local outlets, that um, they're kind of going down that sort of fanzine route. They're doing podcasts. They're doing more. You know, not necessarily like I wouldn't say clickbaity content, but yeah. they are. But I mean, like sort stuff that fans want to read. They're, they're actually starting to go more along that line I think I think we're definitely a um, a mould for the future in that all content's going to go digital eventually you know and newspapers are starting to twig onto that and well maybe twig onto it a little bit too late but they're starting to go digital because that's the only way they're going to be able to support their platform in the future if they want to make money from it um, so yeah I think when people look at Rota Report and they see I don't know Dave Jones from Pallion <laughs> or whatever, just a random. Uh, writing something from the heart because yeah. it's his club, then you can resonate with that. But if it's somebody who covers the club and gets paid for it, not necessarily a Sunderland fan, 
I think it, it doesn't have the same sting to it, um, especially when it comes to really important topics like club ownership and managers and players who should be going out the door and what have you. Then fans fans like to back each other up. It's it's, it's something not unique in that sense. Yeah. Um, but I like to think that. I don't. I'm not blow horn too much, but I like to think we do a good job of trying to cover all the bases and generally, genuinely getting the, the the tone right. Really, you know, we've got to try and assess the the mood amongst the fans and try and represent them as best we can because not everybody has has the ability to 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 do what we do, which is speak to thousands of people every day. And like I say, I don't like that voice of the fans tag. I would never ever say that's what we are because we aren't. Yeah. We just speak for ourselves, but yeah. if somebody reads what we're doing, says, "Oh, I agree with that," you know, that I'm glad somebody's saying saying that because I can't do it. Then, job done, really. Yeah, but, exactly. Um, yeah, it's, it's essentially at its core, we're just fans. We're just Sunderland fans. That people think of us maybe a little differently because we do have this platform, but we're just Sunderland fans like anybody else. We go to the games, we pay our money, we come from all different walks of life. You know, very few of the lads involved with me actually write for a living. I think there's only a handful of us. Yeah, you know we've got people from all walks of life involved, and I don't like think I don't like it when anyone suggests that we're we're, we're different because we aren't. We're just fans with maybe with a little bit of talent and can write and talk about this. You know, um, so I would encourage anybody really to get off the backside if they've got something to say and do something about it. Really, mm-hmm. doesn't matter who you support, whether you support Sunderland, Newcastle, Middlesbrough, Gateshead, whoever. If you have got something to say and you've got very strong opinions. Then why not? You know, it's a digital age. We can all do. We can all do this now. Mm-hmm. We've all got phones. We've all got the internet. Most of us. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got social media. If you want to voice your voice your views and you know create a platform and go for it. Yeah. So just to backtrack slightly, when we're talking about the like the Chronicle, the Sun, and like oh they ask for feedback, but do you think it's helped mm. you wrote the Roger Report because it's mainly been online as blogs and podcasts for a number of years now do you think that's that's the pandemic has actually i'm not saying it's going to help be helpful to anybody but do you think it's actually helped you in the sense that you're sort of ahead of the curve in that in that way and you're not sort of playing catch up with with having to go oh well what can we do better with the blogs and reports we're already we're already sort Mm. of there we've reached that that point already and we can just build on the success we've already had yeah i think so because um like you say we're already set up to work from home a lot yeah. of these industry, I mean, particularly local newspapers, I think they rely quite heavily on their access to the club. So going on a match day and interviewing in the tunnel and sitting in the press box and reporting on games and then going to the academy through the week to meet the manager and the players. And that's where they get the majority of their unique content, which yeah. is quotes essentially from, um, from, from players and staff and stuff. Whereas we don't have that, you know, we would. Although we do occasionally get the odd tidbit transfer news, and like I said to you before we came on air, we've just done a podcast with a with a current player who's out of contract at the minute. So you know he took it upon himself to speak to us. Great, yeah. um, but not often we get access to to, to the f- current players, and I can understand why because uh, right now as a fan base, we're particularly critical of the club and any association the fanzines is probably not welcome. You know, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think in terms of the way. We do things. We're definitely shaped up to 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 deal with this a lot better than anybody else because we've been doing it like this for years, you know. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's been it's been a good, an interesting time because I, I worried at first really about about how we were going to handle like putting out stuff every day and making 
keeping people infused about talking about football. I mean, at the minute, it's, it's just the juices are starting to flow again because we've just launched the new home kit, mm-hmm. we've signed a couple of players, the players are back in training. So there's actually stuff to get you, you energised again about the football. Regardless of what's going on off the pitch, um, there's, there's things starting to happen again and that gives you the... It gives you the buzz back, you know. Well, I've missed football. I didn't for a time. I, I, sat, I kind of sat there. It wasn't even that long ago, really, a few weeks back. Mm-hmm. But I sat there and kind of thought, you know what, I haven't missed something at all. But mm-hmm. then I'm starting to see the players come in. And I mean, we, we did a podcast the other day just talking about the new signings, and it was completely positive. I can't remember the last time we actually sat and just had a positive conversation. <laughs> and we don't want to be negative about things. It's just yeah. sometimes that's the way things are. You know, so... Yeah, we've 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 dealt with the pandemic quite well. I think I don't know, I don't know how easy the papers have found it, but I imagine financially it's been difficult for for any struggling industry, which journalism is, unfortunately, at the minute. Yeah, of course. So, you you said there the question I was going to ask you. I'll I'll still ask you as well because you might be able to build on it a little bit. But sure. you were saying there about the the current players, you don't really get access to them, which is you know you mentioned it, understandable because. They don't want to be seen to be saying anything derogatory towards the club, and they might get them into trouble, which it makes sense. But you had Gus Poyet on on Monday, and you know we've had to move mm. this, we've had to move this podcast because of him. So I'm blaming him for this. But um, <laughs> how how was that? First of all, how was it talking to Gus? It must be, you know, it must be a little bit awe inspiring talking to a boss that you know did do quite well with the club. To be fair, um, yeah, I don't know, I don't know yeah. how you felt about that. I'm just looking at it from the outside oh. in. But as a fan, what you know, what how did you? First of all, find talking to him, and how how did you think he did as a manager? Well, first things first with Gus, he's an absolute pro. Like I remember when he was Sunderland manager, he can talk for England. So we'll, you know, before you arrange a guest for a podcast, kind of you can kind of gauge how easy it's going to be just because you've probably heard them speak before. Yeah, with Gus, he's he, he's a talker. So um, to be honest, I, I sat in on the conversation. I did talk to him. But uh, I let somebody else host it. But I did talk, mm-hmm. and um, I just found him completely endearing. I, I mean, it, it got the juices flowing again. I mean, he, was, he hasn't been Sunderland's manager since for what twenty fifteen, I think. Um, I think so, yeah. But I, I actually said to him, I said, "You know what, Gus? I could have closed my eyes at a point there, and it was twenty fourteen again, <laughs> and you were pushing Sunderland out of the relegation zone. We were in cup finals. We're beating Newcastle. I mean." It was like it was like reliving it, and yeah. I mean that's amazing. It's an amazing feeling when you people people like that when when they, they get your hair standing up on end when they talk to you. There's nothing better, really. He's just a. I mean, it's a shame that his career as a manager hasn't gone quite as well as I probably anticipated. I mean, after he's left Sunderland, he's had some decent jobs and nothing's really happened off for him. Yeah. Um, but I actually said afterwards, I was like, you know what it is? I could, I could see, I could just see. A club at Sunderland's level, League One, with all the facilities to, to really push on a manager like that, just getting behind them and saying, look, we're going to give you four years, five years to yeah. get this club back where it needs to be. There needs to be a realisation that football, the football philosophy of the club needs to change. There's a, there's a different way of playing. And Sunderland are going to play this way. We're going to, we're going to recruit players to play this way. We're going to recruit coaches and backroom staff to play this way. And really, I mean, I'm desperate for that as a Sunderland fan. Just a philosophy of playing. Yeah. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't have to be the ticket tacker passing way that was popular when Gus was probably Sunderland manager, and he tried. He did to an extent get us playing that way. Um, but like, I'm just craving Sunderland 
as a club to have a way of playing where you can identify like that. When people say that's the way Burnley play, that's the way yeah. Sheffield United play. I want people to say that's how Sunderland play, mm-hmm. and it doesn't necessarily have to be pretty football. Like you wouldn't say Burnley played pretty football, but it's successful, mm-hmm. and you know exactly how they play. Or Sheffield United, um, I mean, sort of to a degree started to copy that before the before the season ended, playing yeah. a certain way. Mm-hmm. So it would be nice for me to see Gus or somebody like him get a job where we can actually have a, a, a run at it. Because these days, managers don't get a run at jobs. They get a year, maybe even less sometimes, you know what I mean? And how can you really get your ideas across to your players in that time? It's probably why managers like Sam Allardyce have been so successful throughout their career, yeah. despite never really spending great periods of time at clubs other than Bolton. You know, he's going to a club, turn them around, leave, and they're, they're better off for it. It happened, you know, Sunderland were a better, better club for Sam Allardyce being there, but he wasn't there very long, mm-hmm. you know, and that, sometimes think, well, Clubs need an identity to, to really build, especially when you're suddenly you're in the third tier. So, yeah, um, that's a long way around answering it, but Gus, to me, just evokes brilliant memories. He took us to the cup final, obviously. Um, he, we beat Newcastle, obviously, his second game in charge, which was a great day, but, I mean, the second win over Newcastle is probably the most one-sided derby performance I've ever watched, and that was all him. The players played Newcastle off the park. It was his way of playing. Yeah, we completely decimated Newcastle at St James's Park. And I think when you look back in twenty years' time, people will say that's the best Sunderland have ever played against Newcastle. And he was the manager, you know. Yeah. So you've got to like. I think I think time will be good because people will think a lot more of him. They won't remember the fact he he wrote like an open letter, which was quite condescending to the fans. They won't remember losing eight 0 to Southampton. They won't remember the, the bad stuff. They'll just remember how. How much he kind of revolutionised Sunderland over a short period of time. So, yeah, I think he's he's still got a lot of um, fuel in the tank when it comes to management. Mm-hmm. He, he he needs to be given a project. No, oh, that's the problem. Yeah, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed that happens because I know a lot of Sunderland fans I've spoken to, including yourself, were were very very complimentary about the way he went about his style <coughs> in the club um, and what you're saying there about having a philosophy and it's it's a bit like I know. Um, Newcastle fans and Sunderland fans have a little bit of sort of banter between themselves uh, over social media, but as a northeast as a northeast base, even when you look lower down, I think it's all people want. It don't want to win leagues or anything. It's just a case of clarity and knowing where people stand, isn't it? It's identity. Just yeah. having having an identity is more important than anything. Yeah, I couldn't say Sunderland have one. Would change manager too often to have one. Yeah, probably the same with Newcastle. Really, I mean. You couldn't say there was an identifiable style of play with Newcastle other than putting 11 men behind the ball with Bruce. But mm-hmm. like, as a fan of any club, you want to see your team go out, play a certain way. If you lose your best player, it doesn't matter because you just recruit somebody who can play that position. Yeah, good point. And the whole setup of the club from top to bottom, I'm, I mean, I'm really, anybody who reads Rotary Paul will know this and listens to the podcast, I'm, I'm really passionate about the fact that Sunderland need a, a top to bottom philosophy which goes from the boardroom all the way down to the pitch and the fans as well um, I mean I, I look at clubs like Brentford and I'm just envious of the way that they're set up you know but that's been five years in the making and yeah. unfortunately they were, they were you know what one game away from Premier League football and they haven't made it but Brentford as a club realised five years ago look we have to have we have to have a, a, a real deep think about the way we play and the way we recruit and what they did was is 
the owner kind of employed a director of football, said this is the way forward. The manager at the time, Mark Warburton, didn't want to play that way. He didn't want people to recruit players on his behalf, mm-hmm. and he left. And as a result, Brentford hired a manager who was completely sold on the idea. They recruited players who were sold on the idea. They changed the whole academy stru- uh, structure. They recruited backroom players to fit a certain style, and they invested in that in that system. Yeah. And look at it, they went from being a third-tier club to a club who next season are going to have a brand-new stadium to move into, probably going to be one of the favourites for promotion. And I know every three, four years this happens, people say, like, oh, we need our club needs to be more like Southampton, we need to be more like Brighton, we need to be more like Wolves, blah, blah, blah. But I just think that there's a lot to be said for clubs being sustainable mm-hmm. um, and being self-sustainable. And, I mean, unless you're Manchester City, Chelsea... Liverpool, Man United, you've got no chance of being sustainable any other way. You have to buy players with the mindset that eventually, if you develop them right, you're going to sell them. But it's not a problem because we have a style of play that um, we have a style of play that whereby if we lose, I don't know, say Liverpool for instance, lost Sadio Mane, they would then know exactly the type of player who could come in and fill fill his boots successfully. Yeah. And that goes for all clubs, doesn't matter what league you're playing. You should have that way of thinking. And it's an educational process, really, that takes a long time. Um, but, I mean, I can't see that happening at Sunderland under the current ownership, maybe under the next ones. You've just got to get the right people in place to be able to, to, to have a structure at any football club. doesn't matter if it's grassroots or it's it's the Premier League, really. Yeah, good point. Yeah, it's a good point. We'll, co- we'll come back to that because I'm, I'm interested to get your thoughts on on the process and the four or five year plan that Brentford put in. I know you were very complimentary about that on a few of your recent tweets. And um, it's uh, obviously, mm. like you said, it's, it's almost worked, but I'm sure they'll come back stronger. Um, I just want to go back to under you personally now, as, as opposed to just talking about mm. purely Sunderland. So I mentioned when we first came on about you, you were initially involved in coaching with some grassroots teams um, and then you went, yeah. out of, went into writing. Was the coaching just purely, you know, a passion and something you wanted to do on a weekend just to, you know, keep things ticking over? Or did you envisage yourself maybe going into coaching when you were, you were older uh, and then writing just came um, along and then, you know, it took over? Kind of coincided with each other, to be honest. I mean, first and foremost, I'm just really passionate about football. I have, me, have been my whole life, you know. Been a yeah. season ticket holder at Sunderland since I was... Well, well, wasn't even old enough to know what was going on, yeah. you know. But so, I've, football's always been in my life. I've played, I've refereed, I've coached, I write about it. Mm-hmm. It's just what I do. It's like it'll always be there. Sunderland football, any football, it'll always be there because it's what I've been brought up to love, you know. Um, but in terms of coaching, I kind of once I was too old to play. Um, I kind of just thrust myself into it. So just like you, I got involved with Bolden Colts and mm-hmm. um, John Guy, who's one of the best out there really in terms of, I mean, he's he's kept youth football going in Bolden really single-handedly because yeah, totally if it wasn't right. him, there wouldn't be new teams coming through. And that was kind of the case when when I started off at Bolden Colts. Um, John was, as he does every year, still does it to this day, um, yeah. starting off the... The, the younger age groups, the five-year-olds, just basically getting them into training. What he does every year is he starts he starts started off advertisers that he's, he's starting the, the, the uh, training sessions. The kids come along, 
it's all fun. Um, once they're old enough to start a team, you know, try and coax somebody into taking the team, which is exactly what happened with me. Yeah. Um, and and moves them along and starts the next group the next year. You know, and that's that's exactly what happened with me. I I um, I kind of t- dipped my toe in the water when I was about fourteen. Actually, I'd, I was quite young. I got involved with a, one of the Colts teams from years back. Mm-hmm. And just helped out on Saturdays and stuff, just because I enjoyed it really. Yeah. Um. Then, <clears throat> when I was old enough to run my own own team, that's exactly what I did, and um, I ran it with with a friend, and we kept it going till oh, what's about three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um. But I ran two Bolden Colts teams simultaneously, and done a really good job of it. I think I like to think we we had some nice kids, and we developed a lot of players. We've got quite a lot of lads who are still in the academy system. I think they'll be fourteen now. Mm-hmm. Still in the academy system at some in Newcastle and stuff. So I like to think we did our part really. We're, we we gave kids a chance because um, I, I think really anybody listening probably might not know, but South Tyneside isn't particularly. Um, I wouldn't say we're well looked after when it comes to grassroots football. It's uh, the facilities aren't great. Yeah, I mean I knew firsthand obviously running Bolden. If you're not part of the club, which is well run which Bolden isn't and hasn't been for some time, then you're, um, you're on your own kind of thing and you all your fundraising and trying to secure facilities, you're kind of up against it. So if you can do it, if you can deal with all that stress and then get to the pitch and actually give kids a chance to play football in, in a good environment, then, um, then I think it's job done really. And yeah, it was, it, it, I, I don't, I've, I've got quite a lot of, um, I still have a lot of bad feeling towards grassroots but not because of the kids I played mm-hmm. for me or anything. Just don't think it's very well run from top to bottom, really grassroots football. It's just people like me who just want to go on a Saturday morning and give kids a place to play football. You're not really supported very well. Um, but in the main, the, the big take I have from being a grassroots coach is that just gave so many people the chance to play football. Just that don't, you know, you, Irrespective of what's going on at home, they, they could come on a Thursday night, Tuesday night, Saturday morning and play football with their mates and forget about whatever was going on at home or at school or whatever, you know. Or even just because they love football, we give kids a chance to play football and that's the main thing, really. Yeah. Well, I, I ran, well, I coached Bolden team for oh, nigh on 10 years, to be honest. So I probably started not long after you, even potentially at the same time. And even though me and John had a few, a couple of run-ins because of a couple of fixtures we had and disagreements and what have you, like, there's no doubt about it that what you're saying there is, is absolutely bang on. It, it, without him, the Bolden Colts wouldn't be wouldn't really be a thing. And no, it wouldn't uh, exist. Kids in, kids in South Tyneside, I'm not saying they wouldn't have had a team or anything, but they would have found it a lot more difficult because of the, the amount of kids trying to find teams. But yeah, mm. that, that well, sort at of... The t- at the time... At the time, though, you didn't have South Shields, no, who've exactly. got a brilliant setup now. Yeah. You didn't have Heaven, who've got a brilliant setup now. Yeah, true. Um, yeah. And teams were folding after a year. Like we started out in the Moncton League, which you'll know all about. Yeah, Moncton. It was pretty much its last year before it amalgamated with Russell Foster. And Moncton's basically, I mean, going years and years back, Moncton's always been a thing. Yeah, Mon- the Moncton Football League. So we we were pretty much the last year there. Mm-hmm. Um. And the teams all around us were folding from, and it's like, I, I, after a year, we only had one team, mm-hmm. and after a year or so, I seen all these teams folding, and I just, I had people ringing us, can we some come and train with you? And I'm like, we don't have enough spaces, <laughs> yeah. so what we ended up doing is taking on a second team, and yeah. 
basically forming another club, uh, another another team who who play that same age group, just to give kids a chance to play. You know. Yeah. Great. Um, and they came from all over, white ladies, um, Jarrah, and everywhere. Yeah. Just because there was nowhere to play football, really, unless you went outside the South Tyneside. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I'm glad it's getting back on its feet. I'm glad the likes of Shields and Heaven are putting money into it because, um, like I say, Bolden, for as great as the people involved are currently, there's no real structure there, and it's a shame. You know, it would be great to say that because Heaven and Shields have got it, maybe Bolden could be the next club to get some proper. Leadership and investment and better facilities as well. We don't have great facilities, and then once you've got all of that in place, the rest takes care of itself because there's always going to be kids who want to play football. Yeah, I know that as original <laughs> Bolden residents, and I know uh, Jamie Chandler said this as well. Obviously, he still lives in Bolden. I think he's going to live there for the rest of his life, to be honest. But uh, he's uh, he was massive on that when he was younger as well. So fingers crossed, fingers crossed, there is some sort of money pumped into it in the future. But. Um, yeah. yeah, it's obviously grassroots coaching for me is like, it's where it's at in a sense because it, I think it's where you learn the ropes in terms of, you know, how to be how to be a good person and how to teach kids to do the right thing and, you know, play, yeah, yeah, play good football but set them up, set them up for life after they the leave your team or they leave school or whatever it may be. Mm, but the thing, you know, is though, what, what, and this is one of my problems with grassroots football, but a lot of it's too competitive and a lot of that comes from parents and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying you need to take competitiveness out of sport because I don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of these kids, it's just an escape, it's something to do. Yeah, and especially like, I mean, it, it seems mad saying this because I don't consider myself old at all. But like when we were kids, it was totally different. Like you played yeah. out all the time. You were all, I, never, I never didn't have a ball with us. You know, yeah, exactly. I was always playing football. I know. Where now? Maybe maybe changed, some maybe changed. some places we shouldn't have been playing like, but never mind. <laughs> aye, aye. But like, it's different now. Like, I'm, I'm out walking all the time, and I never see kids playing football on the park anymore or yeah. in the back lane. It's just not something that happens anymore, and it's, that, I find that a shame. Yeah. So it is. What it, what it means is is that the the because obviously, like I say, there's always kids who want to play football. There's always parents who want to get the kids involved with sport. But I mean, it might not be at the same level as it was years ago but like that interest is still there obviously and mm-hmm. um that's when the grassroots clubs have to step in really and the and and give the kids a place to play because parents change people are scared to really let the kids go outside as yeah. much on mm-hmm. their own yeah and just play out um which makes me sound really old when i say that but it is true it's like it is, yeah. it's not the same as it was when we were kids so um for for the clubs to then give parents a place to take their kids to play football is massive. It's really, it's a, I mean, it sets them up for life, like you said. Kids don't, I'm not talking this, like, I was quite lucky, like I had some really, really good footballers ended up developing under our wing, but it wasn't, it was never about who, having the best players. It's mm-hmm. about giving kids a place to play sport, mm-hmm. keeping them fit, keeping them mindful, teaching them to be good people, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, because, Hopefully, when I see them all in the pub in like five, ten years' time, they'll come up to us and say, you know, I really enjoyed playing for you. I thought you were a good person or whatever, you know. Yeah, of course. That's more, that's more important than being able to tell people that you've got four kids playing in the academy or, you know what I mean? It, it, yeah, that, that was a matter of me. Yeah, um, totally agree. Totally I just, agree. I just, I, just, I just think, I think that, and that point's missed often with grassroots football. You can probably... Tell us better than than. But my personal experience is like as a coach, um, I found it 
really difficult to contend with um, everything else, like the drama. Wasn't it, a, a, this is the problem a lot of grassroots coaches have. Um, 90% of your job as a coach isn't actually coaching, it's dealing with money, dealing yeah. with facilities, dealing with leagues, paperwork, yeah. having to deal with parents, having to deal with kids' concerns. Yeah. Like, it, it, that, none of that's fun either. Yeah. The fun part is putting your cones out and getting the balls out of the bag and doing your thing for an hour, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, being there. And I, yeah, and I think, I think until that mentality, and I don't think it ever will, I just think it's a British mentality went towards football mm-hmm. until that mentality changes where parents kind of hand over all responsibility to the coach when they drop the kids off then you're always going to have this issue and it's going to it's like it's it, imagine it's like running down the street and there's roadblocks everywhere mm-hmm. and you're having to dodge all these roadblocks it's going to take you a lot longer to get to where you want to be it's the yeah. same with coaching it's like if you had a clear path you would get there a lot quicker it would be a lot more enjoyable um and I think that point's kind of missed. And if I could have me time again with kids footy, and maybe I will, maybe I will, I might, I might go back into it eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, I would definitely make sure that from day dot, every single person involved with my my setup, I guess, knows that it's my setup. Mm-hmm. It's, your your opinion matters because you're a parent, but it's not it's not the be all and end all. You don't have to take it home here and start poisoning your kids' minds because yeah. it happens. Mm-hmm. You know yourself, you'll have had it. Um, it makes everybody's job more difficult. It makes the yeah. kids' experience more difficult. I mean, I've always found it difficult to deal with parents because not all of them, I'm tarring them all with the same brush. Yeah, like, I've had some great parents mm-hmm. involved, more better ones than bad ones, but the bad ones kind of sour the box, don't they, when, yeah, when it comes to that. And uh, Yeah, I just think that grassroots itself... It's difficult to to really do what you want. I mean, if you're going to be a, if you want to be a coach, proper coach, then you do you go the route you did. You do you go through education and you you get a job doing it because yeah. then that is grassroots football really, and it's the vision that I've got in my head of what grassroots football should be. People drop their kids off, and you just spend an hour coaching them. That's mm-hmm. the best yeah. part of, of it all, you know. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I guess I guess that's a conversation for another day, to be honest, because I, th- I think we could be here all day talking about that. To be honest. <laughs> but uh, uh, back, yeah. to Sun- back to Sunderland then. So, um, this is probably the going back to the point I made at the start about being purely your opinion and that me just asking questions. But I'm going to try and lead into it in a in a fair way, as fair way as possible. But mm. what do you make of without swearing as well? <laughs> what do you make of um, <laughs> what do you make of Sunderland's current situation in terms of the ownership, in terms of um, yeah, just generally in terms of how how things are going at the moment, Where, do you see an end game soon? Or I do, um, but it depends what your class is soon, really. So, yeah, of course, yeah. Um, I've tried a lot of times to try and summarise my overall feeling on it, but basically, I, I kind of touched on it earlier in, in that for me. It doesn't matter who owns the club. They don't have to be the richest person. They don't have to have the biggest backers behind them, although mm. that does help. Yeah. But it's a case of, does my club have an identity? Do, do the fans feel represented? Do the fans feel catered for? Um, are the people in charge got good intentions? Have they, have they got a vision for the football club that will say be successful come the end of that plan? Um what you find with a lot of club owners is the the ninety five percent talk and five percent productivity, and it's 
kind of what we've seen at Sunderland, unfortunately, really, it started very well with them because what people have got to remember is that anybody who's watched season uh, one of Sun Till I Die on Netflix will have seen aspects of this, I guess. But that last season in the Championship, it was a culmination of like years of bad management at Sunderland. And one thing the Premier League does afford football clubs is the, the financial ability to get yourself out of problems. Yeah. Um, or at least get yourself out of an issue uh, on a short-term basis. So that's what happened to Sunderland. Like, we kind of struggled every year, didn't have an identity, sat manager after manager. And as a result, come the end of it, we're left with a big pile of debt, mm-hmm. um, which made everything more difficult. And we got relegated again as a result. The club was poisoned, basically. And when we got relegated to the third tier and Ellis Short sold the club, Stuart Donald, it was a chance for change. So everybody, after like probably five or six years, bad years of just like never kicking on, never being, um, never being anything but the, the butt of the joke, never having anything resembling success, being like literally a full stadium celebrating survival from the Premier League after nine years mm-hmm. when Sam Allardyce kept summing up. At the time, it was brilliant, but like thinking back now. I'm disappointed in myself for being so for being so passionate about the fact we stayed up mm-hmm. because that's not shouldn't be good enough. Someone have won the, the the league title six times in their history, FA Cup twice. Like we're we're a fairly successful club and we shouldn't be content with just staying up mm-hmm. in any league. So that's why after two years, two relegations, and then two more years in League One. That's why people have had enough because we've actually come to that realisation. We've realised this isn't good enough. We should have got promoted out of this league the first time of asking because we had better resources than everybody. We had a good manager. We had good players. Um, And first and foremost, before that first season in the third tier, Sunderland had never actually finished outside of the playoff spot of any of the bottom, of the championship or League One, it never happened. We'd always got promoted or finished in a in a playoff spot. Yeah, um, which shows you like when we do get relegated out the top flight, we, we remain competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we've had our two worst finishes in our history, and ultimately the book stops with the man at the top, which is what he said himself. He he resigned as chairman and said the book stops with me. You know, ultimately. Things need to change. I'm stepping down, mm-hmm. which I feel is a good move. But really, deep down, all Sunderland fans want is another change in ownership because it's relatively clear that this relationship's reached its end pretty much. Um, and they, they are starting to try and put things in place to put some of the wrongs right. But really, it feels two years too late. I mean, I, again, people, anybody listening to this who reads me stuff on Rotor Report will know I've been banging the drum about getting a structure in place for God knows how long. And mm-hmm. I think when Stuart Donald took charge of the club, he went the complete opposite direction. So he went down the sort of like the way clubs were run in the eighties and the nineties, which was to um the manager did most of the work. You had like one chief scout who and transfers were conducted on like a a gut instinct basis rather than Getting up with the times, really, which is like using data in recruitment and and um, stringent scouting, which I think Sunderland have never done. You can see that it's evidenced in like 
spending four million pounds on Will Gregg and stuff like that. We're, st- we're still stuck in that mentality, or have been. So mm-hmm. really, I was disappointed that the chance wasn't taken properly to really turn the club in a completely different direction. You would think starting again in the third tier would, is the best possible chance, you know. Bring through your best academy players, recruit um, players from down the leagues who you know you can make money on in the future and can grow with the club and kind of didn't get that right. So we're now in a situation where we're in going into a third season in League One and they're actually starting to make these changes, but it feels a little bit too late. Hopefully it isn't. Yeah. Hopefully what they're doing is, is they're going to set up the next owner for a good start. Um, but to be honest, my gut feeling is the club won't be sold this year. It'll not be sold till we get back to the championship. Right. And that what Stuart Donald says about wanting to sell the club is true. He wants to sell it, but he wants to sell it for a price which nobody's going to pay. And that's that's the unfortunate thing about it. And that's the main gripe that fans have with Stuart Donald is that he wants a lot of money for the club who no, no, nobody, no reasonable owner is going to pay £35 million for something. It's not valued that. Um, and until he changes the evaluation of Sunderland, I guess he's stuck with us and we're stuck with him. Yeah. So, I, personally, I believe that we're going to have another year with him as owner. We're going to have another, but that's probably why he stepped down as chairman. He's he's handed over the running of the club to somebody else mm-hmm. um, to really give the club it, it, it's um, to give the club its best opportunity to get out of the third tier and then sell it. Yeah. Again. Who's going to pay thirty-five million for a championship club? I guess we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully we do get promoted. I mean, ultimately, that's all I want to see. The fans is, is um, Sun and back in the second division because we're, we're, you, you get stuck down here. You know what I mean? Sheffield United with you after six years. I don't want that to be yeah, us. Of course, <laughs> yeah. I think um, anybody who's listened to the episode, anyone that listens to the, the podcast and reads the blogs and stuff, it sometimes it can't be misconstrued for. For negativity, but it's one of its it realism, um, in terms of where is where the club's at at the moment. But it's also a little bit of, a little bit of optimism, potentially um hidden optimism. But it's also to say, well, you know, this is where we we want to be. This is where we probably should be as a club, and this is how we we need to get there. Um, and you know, who who knows what will happen next season? It, obviously, the pandemic didn't really help, but hopefully, the academy well, get a, the, the, a manager the claim, soon. The, yeah, well. The, they claimed that before the pandemic hit, they had somebody ready to buy the club, you know? Right. Just, if that's true, if that's true, then it's just unfortunate, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, of course, yeah. We've been unlucky. Um, but it could be a lot worse. It could be like a Wigan fan. Who, that's you know, it, yeah. Least, there's a lot, a lot of clubs, and there'll be more, there'll be more who can't deal with, once the league start again, and there's no money coming in, I mean, I would like to hope some aren't going to be in a position where they're struggling, but... I think there'll be other clubs who are a lot worse off than us. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, sometimes sometimes you do have to just think at least we've got a club to support. You know, I suppose I suppose it's yeah, it's it's a little bit of that as well to say you know people's livelihoods are at stake as well. So fingers yeah. fingers crossed things things do pick up for the you know not just Sunderland but the rest of the country in in football terms as well. But um, but yeah, th- thanks for that. Uh, thanks for that, Gav. It does unfortunately bring to an end the episode, but I've really enjoyed talking about. Uh, talking about the club and your opinions on on Sunderland, um, I you know it's well documented. I am a Newcastle fan, but I, I do enjoy talking about football in general. And whether whether it's Sunderland, whether it's you know a different club, it's it's been a really enjoyable conversation. So thanks very much. No problem, mate. Thanks a lot. No problem at all. So 
Join me next week. I'll be talking to Gateshead Assistant Manager Ian Watson. So see you next week, everyone. Thank you very much.